Yeah, this is my life. I'm done trying to convince people I'm real. Welcome to the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast presented by the Rambling Runner Podcast Network, where we take an inside look into the training of some of America's best marathoners as they prepare for the Olympic Trials in February. And I am so excited to talk to Matt Yano today. Matt ran 211 at Berlin, which was just an enormous race for him. He has had you know, so some positive results over the past few years, but not quite to the level uh, of his potential or his training, in part because of a bunch of injuries he's had and some extenuating circumstances around weather, like at Tokyo uh, in March. And I know he was just so excited to really put it all together uh, in Berlin. And I was so excited to talk to him about it, but not just about the race. We talk about a lot of training stuff in this episode, and we really talked about the last three years where things have gone well for him, like I said, but not as well as he had hoped, that's for sure. So I was just so excited to talk with him today. So with that being said, I also want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Inside Tracker. If performance matters to you, then you know how important nutrition and recovery are. And that's why Inside Tracker is so important because it takes an inside look into 43 of your biomarkers and gives you expert recommendations on how to optimize all of those to set you up for success. So, with that being said, here is my episode with Matt Yano. Hello, Matt, and welcome to the show. Thank you. I was uh, I was excited to get your invite. I've been a fan of the podcast for for a couple months now, so I was happy to see your email come through. Oh well, that's uh, that's really nice of you to say because after seeing what you did in Berlin, I was really excited to reach out to you. Um, not for that reason alone, as I was just telling you, I've been a fan of yours for a while, but. Boy, was that an amazing result! And I know a lot of people were really happy for you when it when it happened. Two eleven fourteen in Berlin, which was uh, a, quite a significant jump from your your previous PR, which you also set in Berlin, but a couple years back, back in two thousand fifteen. So, did you have any flashbacks during this trip to your last trip? Yeah, you know, there was a lot of stuff that um, just kind of as I was getting into Berlin, flying in and then running through the Tiergarten Park and, you know, some of the events leading up to the race, it all was kind of coming back to me little by little. And um, it was kind of nice. And that's honestly one of the reasons that I chose to go back there this year. Um, I was kind of I wanted to run a fast time. This was this was all being decided when we used to need the Olympic standard. Uh, now it doesn't really matter anymore, but um, it's still nice to have it. But so I was I was back and forth a couple months ago between Berlin and Chicago, and um, I kind of chose Berlin because I had a good experience there last time. Uh, my PR is from that course four years ago, and so I thought it would have been a good opportunity to go back and kind of rewrite my history book um, and try to try to have another good one there. And, um, I'm, I'm quite pleased with how it turned out. Yeah, I know. Right. I mean, you, I mean, obviously the, um, qualification standard for the Olympics for, for us runners has changed since, as you mentioned, since you committed to the race, but even if it hadn't changed, you would have been in a good spot, right? I mean, you would have had it by, um, let's see here. What by about by 19 seconds. Cause the old standard was going to be two eleven thirty, correct? Correct. Yeah. So it was, um, that was how I made the decision to go there. And that was kind of, I was back and forth on what the goal would be for the race. And the end result was just that I wanted to come out of it with the Olympic standard. And, um, regardless of whether it really means anything for, for the trials anymore in 2020, but, um, that was kind of the goal. And, and, um, I'm happy to have gone there and executed the race that I wanted to. For sure. And then when you were considering, you know, the, the two different options here, which a lot of people, um, when they were making their final deliberations on which fall marathon to do, if they were going to do a fall marathon at all, that seemed to be like the, the big question, right? Was Chicago or Berlin, um, not only because of just the, that they're generally considered to be speedy courses, but also because of the time gap between, um, you know, these two marathons and the Olympic trials, were there any other factors for you besides your history with the race that factored into deciding to choose one over the other? Like, like, you know, I guess some of those factors could be like who was racing where and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it really, there were a number of things that went into it. It was, uh, like you mentioned, it was the timing. So I wanted, uh, to try to have one that would give me the biggest gap between, um, 
this, this marathon, this race and the Olympic trials. So this is kind of Berlin is kind of one of those kickoff races of the fall season and kind of gives the most time up to the trials in February. So that was one reason. Another reason was that the weather is usually a little bit more predictable in Berlin. Although this year was a little bit, uh, it was, it was good weather, but it was a little bit less than ideal. Um, or like the conditions that you would normally expect in Berlin. Um, and then, you know, the, the depth is always really good in Berlin. There's a huge group. Uh, I remember when I ran in 2015, there was a huge group of probably 20 or 25 guys still together at the 30 K mark. Um, and, and that was something like we talked about a few minutes ago that you're kind of having these flashbacks to the last time you're on this course. And, um, uh, that was one thing that I thought back to. And I remembered how good it felt to just be running with that many people and how effortless it felt, um, not to have to think about what splits you were running and not to have to look at your watch and not really to have to do any work. So you could kind of just tuck into the group and get pulled along. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. And I think that you could find uh, certainly some of those elements in Chicago as well. And I think Chicago is a great option. Um, part of me over the couple weeks leading into Berlin and now into Chicago, I've been kicking myself a little bit because I would love to have been part of the American field in Chicago and, um, just race on, on home soil and, uh, do something really great here in the U S but, uh, there's always more time for that down the road. So hopefully they'll, they'll have me back in, in future years. Yeah. I saw your Instagram post where you're talking a little bit, little FOMO about Chicago and, 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 you know, in that race and obviously the people who are running in it as well. Are there certain people, um, that are kind of your peers in the sport? Um, that you just like running with at, at, at certain races, whether or not, not, not even necessarily because of any, you know, any like just camaraderie perspective, but just because they happen to match the way you race or run or you're just your running rhythms. I guess it could, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. It can be both of those reasons. But is there anybody in particular that if you had to choose a, a group of people or one individual to run with in a race like this that you would try to tuck in with? Oh, you know, I think uh, there's a, a several people come to my mind right away. And I think it's, I think part of it is just having, having an American contingent that can all kind of run together. And a lot of us right now are kind of in that same realm of, you know, we're in that 210 to 212, 213 kind of range, um, or at least what we're capable of, um, and so, you know, I think about running with people like Andrew Bumbleo and Parker Stinson and Noah Drotty and um, Scott Smith, my former training partner, of course. And, uh, you know, some of those guys, I, I would love to just get out on a, whether it's a race or a training run. Um, I think it's, it's just, you know, there's a good guys to have in your corner. And when you're on the starting line next to them, I think there's a comfort that you feel in, um, just knowing some of the people around you, you know, you go and do some of the international races, uh, in Berlin. I, I really didn't know any of the other athletes there. Um, there were one or two other Americans, uh, but I really hardly saw them before the race, didn't see them on the starting line. And so you're in, you're in this race with just a lot of foreign athletes around you, which is, which is awesome. And it's, that kind of brings its own cool dynamic to it. But, um, there's just something different and something special. I think when you step on a starting line and you're surrounded by other Americans and, um, you know, like I said, there's, there's kind of a comfort that comes along with that. I guess the exception would be, uh, at the Olympic trials, cause you're all competing for, you know, one of three coveted spots. Um, but I would say in any other race, I think there's a, there's a camaraderie to, uh, Americans at a lot of these races. And I think that you're going to see some of that tomorrow or, um, excuse me on Sunday in Chicago. And when you're at a starting line with some one of these big fields at, at one of these major races, which you've been a part of for a number of years now, are you someone who can take energy from the group or, is, or does it feel like people take energy from you? And I think the, the obvious comparison is like you see this in triathlon where like Dave Scott would feed off energy where Mike, where Mark Allen, it was almost like he was surrounded by energy vampires and he would try to be as introverted as possible. Do you fall into <laughs> either of those camps? Um. That's tough to say. I think, I think at times I could fall into both of them. I think, um, leading up to some races, I think in the past, I, 
when I get nervous and anxious, I, I kind of turn inward and I get very quiet and very introspective. And um, when I'm thinking about the task ahead, I'm just kind of reflecting back on all the past months. And I just kind of, I kind of go into like a dark mode. Um, but then, you know, on the starting line, uh, and then once we're in the race, I think I, I do kind of draw off of the energy of the people around me and I draw off the crowds. And um, one of the things I, I really distinctly remember in Berlin, um, probably around halfway, I really, I wasn't feeling great. And, um, there was just, Berlin is one of those places that has an awesome crowd the entire course. It's just lined with people. I don't remember a single spot that was quiet, um, which is a really cool aspect of, of a huge, you know, big city marathon like that. Um, and I remember kind of drawing off the crowd at one point and I remember a smile coming across my face and, you know, I've read articles about, uh, if you, feel the joy and you smile, it's like actually physically relaxes you. And so, um, this is one of the tactics I was thinking of going into the race. And I wanted to try to find those moments and draw out those moments when I was racing and it was getting hard and I wasn't feeling good. Um, that was one of those things I wanted to kind of come back on to, to pull me through those, through those times. And so I think, you know, I think there's kind of a little bit of both. I think I draw some of the energy, um, from, other people when they're, when they're feeling good or when they're, I don't know, maybe pulling me along through a rough patch, um, and from the crowds. Uh, but then there's always, you know, I think marathoners, we spend so much time on our own with our own thoughts out on training runs and long runs. And, um, a lot of times in races, we'll find ourselves on our own. So I think, I think there's an element of it too, that you kind of have to be able to turn inward and be able to draw that energy from yourself too. Right. And I think part of it is when you, when you, look inward, especially if you're not feeling well, like you did uh, in that race, which is, you know, it's funny because your, your splits would belie that fact because you ran <laughs> almost, you know, almost perfect even splits between the first half and second half. Uh, it was just a 14 second difference. When you have those moments and you look inside, you know, sometimes it's sometimes your, your, your mind isn't, you know, doesn't give you grace or isn't generous in those moments, um, especially if you're coming through a patch of time um, that just hasn't been going well for you, right? I mean, so like if you if we rewind the clock to you know before the 2016 Olympic trials, you know, you come out of Richmond and you just you're just kicking butt, right? I mean, 2014 you run 61:47 at the USATF Half Marathon Championships. The next and you were finished fifth there. The next year was your you know your 2:12:28 at Berlin. You know, you're on a high. Things are going really well. It seems like during this cycle, this Olympic cycle, things haven't been going quite as smooth for you. So when you have those moments of introspection, when you're not feeling great and not, forget even Berlin um, this time, but even going back to Tokyo uh, in the in the early spring, where I, obviously the, the weather conditions were just miserable and similar to 2018 Boston. What what exactly do you find in those moments, or do you have to kind of you know sift through certain memories to get to to get to the things that you need that are going to work for you? Yeah, I mean, you. I never really thought about it the way that you kind of just packaged it up that way. But um, I mean, you're you're exactly right. I think a lot of I had a lot of momentum going into the 2016 trials, and I think you know I had just just kind of started my marathon career and I was excited and I was young and, um, energetic and I still have a lot of that, but this, uh, Olympic cycle, like you mentioned, has been a little bit different and it really kind of started actually going into Berlin in 2015. Um, cause I had some, some injuries going into that race that I just trained through because I thought the stakes were so high for Berlin and then for the 2016 trials. And I was able to manage everything and get through it. Um, but then it kind of just put me into this, this, really vicious cycle of injury. And, um, I was fatigued and I, you know, I just wasn't healthy in a lot of different ways. And so I kind of needed to take a step back and I had in 2016, I had three surgeries. Um, so it just really was kind of a period of rebuilding and, and trying to rest my body and my mind and my soul and kind of, kind of get everything back on track. And, um, I mean, if you kind of look objectively at some of the races uh, or like take a step back and look at some of the races that I've run since 2016, you know, 2017, I ran a 213 marathon, um, 10 months after a pretty major hip surgery, um, which I was pretty pleased about. And then 
2018, I ran 212.59 at the US Championships and then this year running 211. So if you really kind of look at it that way, I'm still building momentum going into this cycle as well. It's just kind of a different, it comes from a little bit of a different background, I guess. There's a little bit of a different backstory there. Um, but I think through all those times, I kind of just remind myself of what my goals are and I have them written on my mirror every day in my bathroom. So um, it's one of those things that I wake up to every day and it reminds me why I'm getting out the door. And, and uh, I know that I still have more to give in this sport and I have more to achieve and more that I'm still striving to um, to, to get to. And so um, I think those are kind of the little things that get me out the door and then um, – yeah, I think I think there is an element too where you, you think back on the positive experiences that you've had in the sport, and um, I've been thinking a lot, especially lately, about what got me into running. And that was, you know, I had a really awesome high school coach, and um, he just really instilled this love of running and this discipline and um, this excitement. And, uh, you know, I think back to that and I think back to my days running at Richmond and, you know, the team that I had there and what that meant to me. And so there's a lot of things that I can really pull from in that regard. And I think, you know, when it gets tough, I think it's nice to have like a memory bank, um, that you can reflect on. And, um, I guess on that note too, and in the Berlin race last week, um, we had, you know, as you do in most, in most major marathons for elite athletes, we get our special fluids bottles every 5k, give or take. Um, and in this one, I actually wrote on each bottle, I wrote the name or names of a couple people who, um, maybe I wanted to draw energy from, or, you know, maybe people who have been supportive of me, uh, when times got tough. And so I think that was something too, that, you know, it gave me something in each 5k, it gave me someone new to think about. And it was like, I was running this race, um, to reflect how grateful I was for all these people that I've had in my corner. So I think, you know, those are all little things that you can draw on when, when things get tough. And I've certainly had my share of those experiences these last couple of years. So hopefully going into the rest of 2019 and moving into 2020, things can, um, take a little bit of a shift. And I think that they are. So it's, it was a good, uh, starting point to, to run to 11 here in Berlin. And then, um, We'll just see kind of what the future holds, I guess. See, you're a pro, Matt, because you you literally took the question right out of my mouth and started talking about it. Because I couldn't wait to talk about the water bottles because you, know, you said like you you it's a memory bank. It's almost like a, like a water well as well because you have you know these things that you're going to be tipping into to try to like spur you on during the race. Now, is this the first race where you've done that? It is. Yeah. This is the first time I've ever done that. And it was just kind of something I thought of. I think I was, I think I thought of it when I was flying over to Berlin and I was just kind of thinking, um, you know, what would my mantra be for this race and what would, um, what would help me through these tough times? Just like, just like we were just chatting about. And that was something that I came up with that I thought would be a cool way for me to express my gratitude to these people, whether they knew it or not. Um, most of them, still probably don't know that I had their names on my water bottle. Um, I guess maybe whoever found my bottles out in Berlin would know, but, um, yeah, it was just a little thing that I wanted to do. And it was just kind of a little, a little private moment that I had when I was deciding who I wanted to write on the bottles and, and what each of those people meant to me. And so, um, yeah, it was the first time that I had done it, but I do think that it's something that I'll carry over into my future races. Would you mind sharing an example or two? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, some of them, like I had my parents on, on one of my bottles and they're two of my biggest supporters. They've been, they've been around from day one and they've always been supportive and encouraging. And they come to almost all of my races, regardless of where they are on the planet, which is, um, really special. Cause I know that a lot of people maybe don't have that kind of support. Um, so they, they were on one of them. My boyfriend was on one of them. His name is Brandon. He, was just crucial in this training segment for me. I, I did this one really completely by myself. I didn't have a coach or any training partners. So he was out there with me almost every workout of the entire buildup biking with wow. me and just, yeah, just giving me endless support and encouragement, um, all along and the good, way. So and good pictures was, too. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, <laughs> I, he's I see you photo crediting him all the time. 
Yeah. Yeah. There were a number of days that we'd be out there. I, I would have just finished a workout or something. And he's like, okay, do like one or two more strides. And I, you know, I've just finished like a 25 mile workout or something. And he's telling me to do strides. I'm like, no, I, I can't do this, but he'd force me to do it and maybe get a good picture out of it. But, um, yeah. And you know, a couple, uh, let me think who else did I have on there? My, one of my roommates, um, Jason, he's, been in my corner for a number of years. So, um, those are just a couple of the examples. And, um, there's some, there's some more too that, you know, I think are a little more private, but, um, yeah, it was just, everyone kind of had their own place and, uh, it was something that really meant a lot to me. And and it was really actually really effective in kind of pulling me through each 5k and kind of dedicating each 5k to a different person. So, um, that was just a, a little way to, again, kind of express that gratitude. I want to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor, Inside Tracker. Listen, when it comes to diet and nutrition, it seems like there are a million voices in the wilderness all just screaming out. It's hard to understand what to think about nearly any kind of food. And that's why personalized nutrition can be so helpful and valuable. And the key to doing that is getting your blood work done, seeing where you are on a biomarker scale, and you can optimize exactly what your body needs. And that's exactly what Inside Tracker does. They track up to 43 different biomarkers. They've optimized zones specifically designed for you. And also, they have science-backed recommendations for different ways where you can improve different markers and your levels. So give Inside Tracker a try. It's such a valuable resource. Listen, all the top athletes in the world, they get their blood work done and they have professionals taking a look at it to make sure that they're on the right path. Shouldn't you be able to do the same thing? So use code RAMBLINGRUNNER to save 10% on Inside Tracker today. Now, you mentioned earlier how, you know, it's been proven in some studies that, you know, that being able to smile during an endurance race or other, you know, I'm sure other tasks as well that are physically and mentally and emotionally demanding can provide actual physical benefits. And they've also said the same thing um, about being able to focus on other people as opposed to ourselves uh, during those same sorts of moments. So with that in mind, have you gone out of your way? to embrace this kind of thinking of others as opposed to focusing on self during races? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that it can be a little bit challenging in our sport because there is a a huge element of it that is a little bit um, selfish. I think, I think a lot of people to get to a certain level, there's, you have to be a little bit selfish. Um, So that can be somewhat of a challenge, but one of the things that um, I've tried to embrace along the way and, and I've done a better job of this at some times than others. But, um, one of the things is back in 2013, uh, was the first time I, I kind of publicly talked about being gay and I came out in a kind of a public sense. Um, and ever since then, you know, I get a lot of messages from people on social media or through email of, um, people just kind of expressing their, um, I don't know, their gratitude for me being like somewhat of a role model or just kind of being open and honest about who I am. And, um, so I think that there's an element these last couple of years that I've been running to, um, just try to show people, especially in the LGBT community that like, there's no, we don't need to limit ourselves in what we believe we're capable of because of these boxes that we put ourselves in. Um, and I think that especially in sports, um, there tends to be a little bit of a stigma. I think, I think less so in running, um, but certainly just kind of in sports overall that um, LGBT people are kind of less than. And so that's one of the things that I kind of just wanted to break that stereotype a little bit for myself and for others. Um, and so that's something, that's probably the biggest thing I would say that if I'm running for something outside myself, it's kind of that community, um, that I'm, that I'm part of as well. So if I can represent something bigger than myself and, um, do that with some kind of grace and dignity and, um, affect some kind of positive change, then, um, I'm happy to step into that role. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, especially when you're getting feedback, um, of the impact you're having on other people, especially if you don't even know the people, 
right? Because you can say, wow, if like I'm getting feedback from X number of people, there's probably people who I'm affecting who maybe aren't even reaching out. So this could really mean something. You want to make the most of those opportunities. Yeah, exactly. And and a handful of them are people that I do know. And um, the vast majority of them are people that I don't know. But um, I think it's it's a unique way to be able to connect uh, with with you know, parts of the running community. And, um, just by kind of having this openness and this vulnerability, um, cause I think, you know, at the end of the day, we're all just people, uh, we're all striving for different things and in running it's, it's really a simple pursuit. You know, we're all just, uh, trying to find what we're capable of and just trying to enjoy the sport. And I think that when you can share that with everyone else, um, I think it just adds that much more value to it. Right. And it's, there's also that dichotomy of, you know, while it may be scientifically proven that by focusing on other people during those times, you know, it's, you know, it can improve performance. It's also easier said than done, especially when you're suffering, oh, yeah. because, you know, at the same time, you also have to be very conscious of how you're feeling, right? You don't want to blow up on account of like, oh man, I never checked in with myself and I was overheating and I didn't even realize it or, you know what I mean? Or things like that. So you have to kind of live in both worlds, right? Of being able to like be acutely aware of how you're feeling, but not necessarily dwelling on it in those instances. Yeah, definitely. I think there's, there's certainly an element of that. And I think it's um, kind of like we talked about before, like you're, you're drawing on these different things to kind of get you through the rough patches. But then, you know, you also, like you've just said, you'd also have to kind of figure out uh, and, and you have to kind of be in touch with objectively, like what you uh, what your training is indicative of and, you know, what, um, kind of, what kind of progression makes sense for what you've been doing and stuff like that. So I think when you take that in consideration and then, um, but also factor in, you know, maybe, maybe you can eke out an extra minute or so by focusing on, you know, the positive people in your life or the positive, uh, influence that influences that you have. And so I think there's certainly an element of, of, both sides of that coin. Um, and I think you just have to find the right balance of the two of them to really kind of get the most out of yourself on race day. Yeah. And another thing you did during this race was that you actually had a race mantra that you were repeating, um, throughout the race, um, which was you're better than you've ever been. So I guess, first of all, was this something that you were, that you were taking on faith or was this an evidence-based observation of, of your fitness? Uh, a little bit of both, you know, I, I've had, like we talked about, I had a couple tough years coming through injuries and, um, but then once I got on the other side of that, uh, my training really has kind of elevated to another level. And, um, I've been doing some workouts in Flagstaff that uh, were just kind of unreal. And I mean, I'm not saying that to gloat. I'm just saying like, I don't know of anyone else who's done some of the stuff that I was doing and not like, I'm not tooting my own horn there, but, um, I, I just think like for but my maybe own, you, but you have, you have, you can make apples to apples comparisons. I mean, you've been up there for a while. You've trained with a lot of people. You were part of the NAZ elite for a while. That was, you know, that's based up there and you've run a lot of workouts with other people. It's not as if you're not aware of what other people are doing on, you know, Lake Mary road or whatever. Yeah, no, that's true. And, you know, I've lived here for almost eight years now in Flagstaff. And so I, I, like you said, I have seen a lot of what other people do and, uh, there's, you know, a thousand different roads to Rome, but, um, I think I've, I've never done the kind of work that I've been doing. And so, um, I worked really hard going into CIM last year, really hard going into Tokyo. Um, and I was certainly fitter than I had ever been. Um, unfortunately I caught a rough day with weather in Tokyo. And so I wasn't able to, um, actually showcase the fitness that I had, but, um, in this buildup, I scaled it back a little bit. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't overcooked. Um, that was, that was one of the things that I was a little bit concerned about. Um, I think, you know, I just, it was so, the intensity that I was doing was so much higher than what I'd been doing before that I kind of just wanted to back off and let my body catch up. And so I think that that was something positive that came out of this buildup was, you know, just being able to evaluate the work that I had done in the past and just knowing that, 
you know, all these years of hard marathon training and, um, all these, you know, 120, 130 mile weeks and super long, long runs and hard workout long runs and all this kind of stuff, knowing that all that stuff was in my body and that I was mostly healthy and, um, able to kind of take advantage of that. That's kind of where I drew that, drew up that mantra from. It was like knowing that I, I, again, was mostly healthy coming into this one. I've had, um, a couple good, couple good marathon experiences, couple bad ones, but, um, just knowing that with, which with each of those, you learn something. And I think that there's, that's valuable. So you learn something from all these marathons. And I think Berlin was my ninth one. Um, and I just felt, I felt really strongly based on all that stuff that I'm better now than I've ever been. There's always this doubt, you know, my PR in the marathon was from four years ago. So you always kind of wonder, especially after you've had some major surgeries, you wonder if you can get back there again and you wonder maybe my best days are behind me. But again, I think that's where kind of having some of that faith, uh, kicked in and it was like, you know what? No, I'm, I'm better than I've ever been before. I'm, I'm, I've proven it in workouts to myself, not to anybody else. Um, and I think, you know, you kind of, anyone who, maybe has followed me closely over the last couple of years might've noticed that in this buildup, I was pretty quiet on social media. I wasn't posting a whole lot of workouts. I wasn't tweeting a lot. I wasn't, you know, I was kind of just, just focusing on the task at hand and, and taking it one day at a time and just kind of, um, I don't know, just experiencing the journey for myself instead of, I feel like in the past I had been kind of trying to, prove things to everybody else. And so this one, this one was kind of for my own, my own benefit, um, to just prove it to myself that I was still capable and that I still had the passion and I still had the drive. And, um, it was a nice reassurance, um, getting through all of this hard work and then having, having that, uh, cherry on top in Berlin that we don't always get to, uh, experience at the end of a mar- of a hard marathon cycle. You know, the race doesn't always go the way we want it to, but I was happy in this regard that it did. And I was able to kind of check off a lot of the boxes that I had for this year and for this season. Um, and it gives me, um, that much more motivation going into the trials and, um, whatever I decide to do after that. So, um, it was a nice, it was a nice place to be and it's, um, an encouraging result for sure. Yeah, and you mentioned before that you were out there, you know, every day by yourself from you know from a training perspective, um, yeah, not physically by yourself because uh, your boyfriend was there, you know, on the bike and was supporting you in, in his way. But it's not as if you had a coach and training partners out there with you. So after your parting with the NAZ Elite and Ben Rosario as your coach, what was the process for you trying to figure out? You know, whether to, you know, kind of whether to train by yourself or I'm sorry, not train by yourself, but, but to coach yourself, you know, what exactly would that mean? You know, you know, what kind of, you know, if you're going to work with other people, what role would that be versus like a full time or an advisor? Just what was the process for you and, and still trying to determine the best way for you to kind of build um, any kind of support system and team around yourself in the kind of structures or infrastructure you were considering? Yeah. I mean, at first my, my thinking was that I could do it on my own. And, um, I did that for maybe two months after I parted with NAZ elite. And it just, I think just kind of grinding through some of the summer miles, um, and just such having such a drastic change from the team environment that I had been in was really challenging for me. And so, um, I started to think about, uh, if I wanted to join a group, uh, work with a coach again, all those things that you kind of were just, were just talking about. And, um, at the time, uh, I had been, I had been good friends with Ryan Hall and Sarah Hall. Um, and we, I forget initially how it, how we even kind of broached the subject, but, um, Ryan was coaching Sarah and one other girl, uh, Rachel Johnson in Flagstaff. And we met up and we talked about the possibility of working together and we were both really excited about it. Um, and we, we did some really great work for whatever, nine, nine months or so that 10 months, something like that, that we were working together. Um, but ultimately I think he, his biggest focus is on Sarah and rightfully so. And 
I think you saw with her just running 222 in Berlin as well. And then the crazy like success that she's been having the last couple of years. Are um, you saying I, that Ryan Hall wasn't going to give you the same attention as Sarah Hall? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's why, weird, why right? Why do you do that, Matt? <laughs> it's weird, right? No. And I think, um, and I respect that completely. And I think that, you know, they, they need to do the best thing to try to put Sarah in the best, um, position to make the Olympic team. And so, and I need to put myself in, in my best situation to make the Olympic team. So, um, I no longer felt that that was really the right thing for me. Um, so Ryan and I parted ways as well, uh, just a couple months ago back in May. And so since then I've been on my own. Um, and again, it was kind of like this buildup. I thought I was in a little bit better position when I was working with Ryan, a lot of my stuff was on my own as well. He was out there for a lot of workouts, but all the running pretty much was by myself. Um, so I had kind of learned to how to do that. And I had learned, uh, I had adapted to being able to handle the workload on my own. And so I thought that I'd have a better shot this time around. Um, so I wrote up all my own training. I, I wrote out a full training plan from the end of May through uh, Berlin and um, allowed myself to kind of make little tweaks along the way, but really wanted to do that to hold myself accountable. And I think the last time that I tried to do it, I was kind of writing training as I went. And it was kind of like, what do I feel like doing today? Uh, which really is not for me anyway, is not the right approach. So I think having learned from that experience, I was able to, to carry some of those lessons over into this training segment. Um, and, you know, was able to come out of it with a nice PR and, um, a pretty good performance in Berlin. So some things I, I want to tweak, but ultimately I would love to be part of a group still. Um, I'd love to be part of a group again. So, um, we'll see, there's hopefully some stuff in the works right now that I, I can't really talk about right now, but, um, hopefully maybe sometime soon. <laughs> um, but ultimately I would love to be part of a group. I'd love to share that energy with people around me and, um, have again, like kind of like we talked about, have, uh, something that I can represent that's, that's bigger than myself. So we'll see if, if that pans out. So no, so no breaking news. Is that what you're telling me? No breaking news. I no wish bre I could share. <laughs> I wish I could share something with you. Trust me. Um, but nothing yet. Got it. All right. No, no, I totally understand. So, um, as you're writing out your plans for yourself and you, you've, you know, you've learned from a lot of people, whether it's, you know, previous coaches that you've worked with, you know, you mentioned earlier, your high school coach, you had a good college career. You worked with Ben for a while. You had a good relationship with Ryan when he was your coach, as well as just, you know, being a student of the sport and knowing how other people are training and things like that. What are some of the things that you try to, um, do with your own training that, that you've learned over time? And I guess to, you know, kind of make this question a little bit easier to understand as I'm stumbling through it is, you know, just like, <laughs> Um, you know, so I've talked to Ben Rosario and Kellen Taylor about just like their training. And then one example is like how they do a lot of uh, marathon paced work as opposed to really crunching like the high speed intervals. And that's just something that they do. And that's something that their group does. And that's just a staple of their program. And you can probably find programs that do the opposite. So how would you describe the program that you put together for yourself? Um, it's a little bit of a mix really of just some of the things that I've learned over the years. And I think, um, you know, I think I drew some of that from when I was working with Ben, I drew some of it from when I worked with Ryan and, um, some of it from chats that I've had with Shalane Flanagan and stuff that she's done. And, um, just kind of, like you said, being a student of the sport and just kind of learning over time, what my body responds to. And, um, so it's kind of a little bit of, of a hybrid, I guess. And, um, when I, when I was working with Ben, you know, we did, um, I don't know, we did a lot of easy long runs, just kind of time on your feet kind of stuff. And, um, we did actually like a, a fair bit of, we never really did like all out sprinting any kind of stuff. We did a little bit, I guess, but not a whole lot of it, but I think the, the fastest mile I ran in this segment was maybe 439, like just nothing. It was, which was kind of, which was a lot slower than what I've done in past buildups. And I think, um, I don't respond as well to the really fast track kind of stuff. And it just, I don't know, it kind of beats my body up a little bit more. And after having hip surgery, I just don't handle it as well. And so I focused more on 
kind of like you just said, more marathon pace kind of stuff, half marathon pace kind of stuff where I was really getting the biggest bang for my buck in the long runs, um, which was kind of something I drew from Ryan's training where we, I don't think the entire time I worked with Ryan, I don't think I ever did an easy long run. Um, it was all, you know, that's kind of the bread and butter. That's, that's the closest thing that you're going to get to the marathon itself or are those training long runs. So, um, that was an element that I drew from his training where pretty much, um, maybe with a, a couple minor exceptions, pretty much everything was at least in the long runs was up tempo or marathon pace. And that's, you know, all different kinds of, um, structures in those workouts. So it's not just like a straight 10 mile run at marathon pace or whatever, you know, there's all different kinds of ways you can structure it. And I just kind of had some fun with it. I, I love variety and training. So I just kind of mixed it up and, um, I coach athletes as well, part-time kind of on the side. And so, uh, from creating workouts for the athletes that I coach and then being able to create some for myself that I thought would be fun. Um, it was just kind of a, a cool dynamic to have, um, I guess with myself <laughs> in this, in this training cycle where, you know, I was doing the things that I knew I needed to do to be ready for the marathon. But then I, there was also an element of fun to it where I wanted to do things that I knew would challenge me, but also that I knew I would enjoy. Cause I, I thought I'd get more out of it that way. So it was kind of a hybrid of a bunch of different things, but, um, really it's, there's no secret to it. You know, it's all, it's just a lot of hard work and hard miles. And, um, you hope that you find the right recipe, uh, on race day, but you never really know, I guess. So how has your recovery changed over the years after coming through you know, your, your pelvis surgery and your torn labrum and, and just the, the various, um, you know, injuries that you've had and just ways of learning, you know, what your body can and cannot handle. Oh, that's, that's definitely been a learning curve. I think we all, when we're young, we tend to just kind of coast by. And, um, I think I was, I was fortunate for a really long time not to deal with any injuries at all. Um, which I know a lot of people, a lot of people don't have that experience. So I was, I was really fortunate for a long time, but then once I started getting hurt, it was, there were some bad ones kind of back to back, but I think that, you know, I've just learned that, um, I need to, I need to respect the recovery, which I have a hard time with sometimes. Cause I'm kind of a, I like to do things. I like to be on my feet. I like to be working with my hands or, you know, building things or doing projects around the house. And I've learned that when, when the miles start racking up and, um, I'm doing really hard work, I need to just kind of cut a lot of that stuff out and just focus on body work and, um, seeing therapists and seeing chiropractors. And I really can't let any of that stuff go anymore. Um, and then kind of getting, getting back into the gym and finding the routine to strengthen, uh, the right routine to strengthen my hips and my glutes and, um, everything in my pelvis and core, all that stuff, I think contributed over the years to the injuries that I had. And so I kind of learned from that and, um, there's no, there's no perfect, recipe for it. But I think you just learn from experience over the years. And, um, that's kind of some of the insight that I've gained. Now, did you have to change anything with your stride, um, after these injuries, not only like if, um, you know, if, if these injuries themselves changed part of your physiology, but did, was there part of how you were running that contributed to these injuries? Um, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. I, I never really did any I haven't made any major like overhauls to my stride or anything, but, um, I think the one thing in that regard that I have focused on a little bit is that I, I for a long time, I think I had a tendency to overstride. Um, and so I've made in the last, you know, five or six months, I've made a little bit of an effort to just try to, uh, increase my cadence as I'm running. So just try to take smaller steps a little bit faster. Um, and that's one of the things that I thought about in a lot of the workouts that I was running in this buildup and just one of those little, those little cues that kind of got me through some of those sessions where I think in the past, I just had a tendency to try to power through when I was getting fatigued. And, um, at some point, I, I don't know if I read something or if it just was something that clicked in my mind that I was like, hey, I think I'm just overstriding a bit. And, um, I don't know. I don't know if there's anything to that, but it, it seemed to help in this buildup and, um, 
it's something, you know, I'm, I'm always working with, uh, I work with a really good physio down in Phoenix, John Ball, who I know a ton of people go to see. And, um, I work with him a lot on, he'll, I'll go to his office, he'll watch me run and then he'll work on something and then give me exercises. And, um, I don't always know what the exercises are for, but, uh, he's a genius. So I just work with him a lot and I just trust his guidance on anything, anything biomechanical. And, um, he has been a savior for me since my surgeries. Cause I, without him, I would not be running anymore. I don't think, um, I just don't think I'd be able to. So I'm extremely thankful to have had him in my corner all this time. Well, being a Rhode Islander, I live about as far away from Phoenix, Arizona, as you can in the Continental 48. Uh, but even I've heard of him. So that shows you how good. When, when, when a physio is known nationwide, I guess that, that probably says a lot in terms of their, their, their abilities. So when you, when you started increasing your cadence, as you mentioned, did that alter your foot strike at all? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I had this tendency before, uh, of overstriding. And I think when I do that, I land more on my heels, just when your foot kicks out farther in front of you, the, the, the way that it's going to hit the ground is your heel is going to hit first. And so I think when I tried to increase that cadence a little bit, I tend to strike a little bit more midfoot, um, which, you know, you can read a thousand different articles on what's proper form and proper technique and everybody has a different opinion. But I think, you know, there's a lot of good research out there about midfoot strike. And, um, I'm not a physical therapist or anything by any means, but, um, it seems to be something that works pretty well for me. So just by my own anecdotal experience, um, it's something I think has, has benefited me a little bit in these last, maybe this last like year or so. Yeah. The whole foot strike thing can be tough, right? Cause like, I know I've, I I'm a midfoot striker and I kind of transitioned into that because of injuries and it's worked well for me, but like, Shoot, man. Like, Haile Gebrselassie and Emily Sisson land on their heels, and they're pretty good. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. who, who yeah, am I to say? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, when, as, as your foot strike has changed, has that changed the kind of shoes you prefer in terms of, like, um, stack height or heel drop or anything like that? Um, not especially. Not that I've noticed. I honestly, like, I'm not super – I'm not, like, a shoe geek fanatic, really. I, I don't really look at – like what stack heights are in different shoes. And, um, I kind of just will, will try out a shoe and if I like it, I'll run in it. And if I don't like it, I won't. Um, but I've, I've been able to train. I cycle through so many different shoes in training and they all have different stack heights. And, and so I've been able to train in a bunch of different shoes. And I think that that has kind of helped my foot and my Achilles and lower legs kind of adapt to different stresses and, um, I think that, I think that's a good thing that will hopefully, um, like keep me healthy. One, you know, one of many things that I hope will keep me healthy. Um, cause it's just like forcing your foot to work a little bit differently. And so, um, you know, in every, in every pair of shoes that you wear. So that's something, it's like a little, a little trick that I've learned over the years. And again, I don't remember where I read that or who I heard it from, but I just try to vary the shoes throughout, um, everyday training and for workouts so that I'm never wearing really the same thing all the time. And it seems, again, it's like one of those little things that I think makes a difference. Um, especially in the long haul when you're putting in the kind of mileage that a lot of marathoners do. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. So going into Berlin, uh, I read that you were not, you, I don't know if hesitant is the right word, but, but right, right before the race, it seemed like you're, you were a little unsure about race strategy or how to approach the race in terms of how quick to go out um, and things of that nature. Can you, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, obviously you were confident because you, as you mentioned for your race mantra, you were, you were confident you were as fit as you'd ever been, but can you talk a little bit about the kind of race strategy that you were weighing going into the event? Yeah, I really, I really had two different race plans that I was kind of going back and forth between and the first one, the one that I initially had, uh, the one that I had kind of been training with in my mind, the whole segment was the 210, uh, to run with the 210 group and go for a 210 or sub 210 marathon, um, which anyone who's followed me knows that's been like the big swing that I've been going for pretty much every time I've run a marathon. Um, 
And that was the one that I really, like my gut really wanted to do, or I should say my heart really wanted to do that one, um, to go with the 210 group and to try to run 210 or 209 something. Um, but the more, the closer that we got to the race, the, and then when I saw the, the forecast, the weather forecast, I just, I was a little bit unsure, um, if I wanted to take the big swing this time. And I think from a business perspective, it's a little bit tricky right now because I'm not sponsored. So, um, I was a little bit worried that if I took a big swing and went for sub 210 and then blew up again, that um, that would be problematic <laughs> for me. Um, so what I started to think was if I, if I went a little bit more conservative um, and just tried to go for the Olympic standard instead, which is still a respectable marathon by all accounts, like 211.30 is... Uh, you know, I would, I would have been happy with that. And so, um, once I saw the weather forecast and then just considering like kind of some of the business side of stuff, I thought maybe it'd be better if I just back off a little bit in the first half. And then my thinking, looking at the weather, we were supposed to have a tailwind for the last 10 K, which didn't pan out that way, but I was hoping that I could use that to my advantage in the race and maybe shave off, you know, 30 seconds or a minute in the second half of the race and maybe still dip into 210 or, or sub 210 territory. Um, but yeah, that was kind of, I don't know, that was a little bit of a mis mishmash of thoughts right there. But, um, initial plan was 210. And then once I started looking at the weather and just considering some business stuff, I thought maybe I'll be a little bit more conservative, try to run to 11, which would still be a PR, um, which would still kind of be on that, um, line of progression that I've had these last couple of years, two seven or, uh, in 213 and 2017 to 12 last year to 11 this year. Um, so that was kind of, I don't know, some of the thought process that went into it. And then, um, I thought that there'd be a big group to run with, to try to get the Olympic standard, um, which there was. And then I think we actually ended up catching the 210 pace group. So I don't know, all things considered, I think it was the right call. And, um, if anything, you know, maybe I, I saved a little bit in the tank and, um, maybe it'll help me to recover a little bit better off of this one. And I can, I can give that much more of myself in the build up to the trials and then in the trials themselves. So I think it was the right call. Um, and I'm, I'm happy with the decision that I made about that. And as you go through, you know, your training and race strategy and even executing these race plans, how much of this, um, process can really be traced back to um the, the professional side of like you know understanding that this is for you you know how you earn your living like do you try to embrace that aspect of it like i take like i think someone who's like kind of like a poster child for this in a sense and i mean this in, in all the in every positive sense is like parker stinson who like you know he you know he loves the fact he's a professional runner he embraces every opportunity and he goes into with gusto where you find other people who kind of like they know that it's their profession but they try to dissociate themselves from it, that aspect of the job as much as possible and just try to think of the running exclusively so for you how do you manage um this as a career not just a passion well, I think for a long time, um, you know, I mentioned kind of when I got into running in high school and then running through college and my first couple of years out of college, um, I think for a long time I ran just because I loved it. I, it was just a passion that I discovered. Um, I was a multi-sport athlete when I was younger and just never really found anything that I loved to do until running. Um, and that was the thing that I, I just wanted to give all of myself to. And, um, so that was kind of why I kept doing it. And in college I did it and I, I had no, at university of Richmond, we didn't have any scholarships for the men's team. So I wasn't running for money in college. Um, it was all just because I loved to do it. Uh, and then after college, I didn't have a contract, so I would continue to do it because I loved it. Um, and I think then in 2015, I signed on with Hoka and I think it kind of changed, um, a little bit of my perspective for a couple of years where it felt, I'm extremely grateful to the the support that I had from Hoka at the time, but I think it, it did make it feel more like a job. And I think, um, it was the first time in my life that I had ever actually been running for money really. Um, and for, you know, 
trying to satisfy the terms of a contract. And, um, I think it just was a little bit of a learning curve because I had never experienced that before. Um, so for a couple of years, I, I just felt the pressure of that. And, um, I think now while it's been challenging in a different sense without having a sponsor, I think one of the nice things that has come out of it is that I have realized, you know, I'm still doing this because I love it. And, you know, for the past, uh, for all of 2019, I haven't had any sponsors paying me. I haven't made any prize money. Um, I've just been doing it because I love to do it. And it's, you know, this pursuit that I think is worth it. Um, and, you know, trying to make an Olympic team and trying to, you know, run great times in the marathon and compete on the world stage. Um, these are all things that are just kind of my intrinsic motivations. And I think that rediscovering that in this last year, um, has been awesome. And I, you know, not to say that, uh, I don't want to get paid because I, I do want to get paid. I do want to have this be, you know, my main job. Um, and I want to be able to continue doing it for a long time. So certainly if I had the support of a sponsor, um, that would be worlds easier. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, rediscovering just that passion that I had is, um, I guess one of the nice things that's come out of, an otherwise kind of challenging year. Right. It kind of sounds similar to how you talked about um, learning how to coach yourself in a way, how like you had this period of time where like you didn't, it didn't quite work out well. And then, and then your time with Ryan seemed like a nice, nice bridge to this period that you currently had where you kind of learned how to do it more effectively. It's almost similar. It kind of has a similar story to this, um, you know, your, your professional side of running where you had this period where it was a little bit harder to manage, but now that you've experienced both and how, you know, you learn from your experiences, it might be easier to kind of, you know, marry the two, uh, the second time around. Yeah, absolutely. And I think anytime that, I don't know, I think anytime that we're presented with these challenges in our lives, I think that there's usually some kind of reason for that. And I don't know, maybe that was the reason for this, this period of growth that I've had. And, um, that's kind of the perspective that I try to have in it. I try to find any little tidbits of, um, things along the way that maybe I can use for my own personal development. And, um, you know, nobody has it, nobody has it all figured out. Uh, nobody gets it right the first time around. Um, and so, you know, if there's little things I can learn along the way, um, it's just going to make me a better athlete and a better person and um, kind of better prepare me for uh, not only my future in running, but also my future after running, whenever that is. And you mentioned earlier that you have your goals written on your mirror. Would you mind sharing what those goals are and if they've changed over time? Yeah. So the one I usually, it's usually kind of dependent on the cycle that I'm training for. Um, so I just got back to Flagstaff yesterday after a six week, uh, trip, I guess. Um, and so I haven't updated them for moving past Berlin. Cause usually I'll just focus it on whatever the next big thing is. Um, so my Berlin goal that I had written for probably since June, the beginning of June was sub two ten. Um, and again, like we just talked about, that was a goal that kind of evolved along the way. And, um, you, you know, you have to consider all the different things that we talked about. And so, um, while I did fall a little bit short of that, um, I think it was still something that, uh, like I said, it kind of pulled me through all those training days when I'd wake up and, you know, I had a hard workout on tap that I was maybe a little bit apprehensive for. Um, I'd look at the, I'd look at the mirror and I'd see sub two ten, And I know that if I didn't do that workout that day, if I didn't push myself, I wasn't going to achieve that goal. And so again, it, it kind of got me, it, it motivated me every day to kind of get out the door and, and do the work. Um, and then probably in the next, um, week or so, once I kind of come out of my post-marathon break recovery mode, um, I'll start. I mean, I, the, the goals for Atlanta are fairly obvious. You know, the goal is going to be top three. Um, but you know, there might be some little tidbits of, um, training goals that I might have along the way that will help me to, um, kind of put myself on the right track to, uh, nabbing one of those Olympic spots. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I know a lot of people, you know, 
truly believe in the efficacy of writing their goals in a way that allows them to you know see it all the time and whether it's the power of writing it down or just focusing on it or seeing it or whatever that a lot of people really you know believe in that and it's uh, it certainly is a captivating thing uh, to hear people not only do it but then um, you know achieve some of those goals which is uh, you know certainly motivating factor for a lot of people so two more questions so thank you first of all for all of your all the time and generosity that you've shown and, and, and your wonderful answers. Uh, tomorrow is Elliot Kipchoge's, you know, kind of second op- second opportunity um, to try to break two hours in the marathon. Is this something that you've spent any time following? It is. Yeah. You know, I was actually just thinking about that. I need to take a nap so I can wake up and <laughs> have the energy to stay awake for that. But uh, no, yeah, it's something I've been following. And, you know, I know there's a lot of, um, I don't know if controversy is the right word surrounding this whole attempt and this whole pursuit, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's, it's fun to watch people run fast. And I think it's really exciting to, uh, I'm a big fan of Kipchoge and I'm, I'm excited to see somebody, you know, try to go for this barrier that for a long time, nobody thought humans were capable of. Um, and I think, you know, what I have loved to have seen, uh, Kipchoge versus Bekele in Berlin, of course, although I guess if I was in the race, I guess I wouldn't have seen it, but, um, you know, I would have loved to see that face off, especially after Bekele ended up running what he did there. Um, but I, you know, I think that this is exciting too, in its own way. And so, um, I will definitely be setting my alarm. I will have been in bed for probably, three hours before, uh, the gun goes off. I think it goes off at like 11 15 Pacific time. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to watch it. And I think it's just one of those moments in our sport that, uh, he came so close last time. And, um, I think just him knowing now that he kind of, I don't know, having a little glimpse of what he's capable of, I think prepares him that much more this time around. And so, you know, if he is able to run under two, um, it's a moment that I want to be able to say years down the road that, you know, I watched that race and I witnessed when it happened. And, um, I think it's just, I think it's exciting. So I'm, I'm and, a fan of the attempt. And Matt, you can say that you were high school teammates with one of the Pacers. True. That's true. Yes. Matt Centrovitz, if people don't know. I have this, this, um, this story that I I don't know, I think is kind of fun from when I ran Berlin in 2015, my first time running Berlin. Um, I had another friend in the race. His name is Rui. He's uh, a marathoner from Singapore. And somehow this guy, Rui, if any, if anyone on the podcast knows him, he's great. He's just like friends with everyone somehow, like you just don't even, the connections that he has are unreal. And so I'm at this race in Berlin. I think it was after the race. I had just run 212. Uh, that was the year that Kipchoge's insoles were coming out of his shoes. If you remember. Yes. And then he, he ran like 204 flat. Um, so I'm eating dinner in the hotel after the race and I see Kipchoge walk into the little dining area and he starts walking over towards my table And I'm just sitting at an empty table by myself after the race. And he walks over and he comes and he sits down next to me and he introduces himself. And he's like, are you Matt? And I'm like, uh, I was, I was like blown away. I was so starstruck. And then he's like, yeah, my friend Rui told me to come say hi to you. And I was just like, it just, I don't know the craziest (laughs) thing, but it was like a really impactful moment for me because this like legend, uh, greatest marathoner of all time like came over and introduced himself to me and I was just blown away by that. Um, and so anyway, ever since then, uh, particularly I've been a huge fan of Kipchoge and, um, you know, I know people will say what they will about him choosing to do these time trial events rather than doing some major marathons. But, um, I think his pursuit in, in trying to show, you know, his kind of tagline that no human is limited. Um, I think it's awesome. I think it's something that we can all, kind of take a lesson from and carry over into our lives, whether we're runners or not, and, or whatever, you know, whatever level of runner we might be. I think that there's something to be learned from that where, you know, we all kind of have these self-imposed limitations that, um, really in a lot of cases probably aren't valid. Um, and I think, you know, that kind of, for me goes back to this segment where I was thinking, you know, am I, am I just a two twelve marathoner? Is that going to be my story? Is that all I have? 
Um, do I have anything more to give? And, and that was something that I came back to as well was, you know what, I'm, I'm not limited except by the things that, you know, I, I put on myself. And so that was, I think that realization, I think helped me kind of move out of that mindset and, and move more into a growth mindset and be able to progress past, you know, whatever results I've had, um, in the past and kind of just set myself up for something greater in the future. So I'm excited to watch it. I will definitely be uh, sitting in my living room with my dogs at <laughs> midnight um, watching the marathon for sure. Yeah. And it's not as if like he's shied away from big races. I mean, over the last 20 years, like what race hasn't that guy done? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, well, well from, like, I would still love to see him do New York and Boston because those are two that he hasn't done yet. But I see what you're saying. That's true. In every other, that's true. Yeah. Like in every other sense, um, yeah, by no means has he really shied away. But I think people, I think especially in this age where particularly after Bekele's result in Berlin, I think people were like, oh, like we would love to have seen him do this instead of this other thing. Um, but, and and I get that. And I, and I think that there is some validity to that. But I also think that he's trying to do something that nobody's ever done before. And I think that there's something really cool and really special about that too. So if it's what gets him excited, then I'm all for it. Yeah, and the fact that they need thirty-seven pacers to help them do it—I <laughs> mean, like at, at, at like at first glance, you're like that seems excessive. And yeah. then you're like, wait, hold on. The fact that they actually need thirty-seven people to do it, I guess, illustrates how fast this guy's going. Right, and then and then when you look at like the caliber of pacers that they have too, I mean, I guess it makes sense. Like this is no easy feat, even to run a single mile of it. Like for a lot of people, is is not easy. So. Um, it's looking at that picture that I think has been floating around Twitter and, and was maybe on Instagram of kind of all of his pacers and the black, the black uniforms with the pink shoes. Um, it, like looking at the caliber of athletes in that photo and just thinking about like all the effort that's going into this attempt. Um, it's cool. I don't know. I think it's exciting. I know other people's aren't, other people aren't fans of it, but, um, I, like I said, if it's something that he's excited about and if it's, that's like his, his goal that gets him out the door every day. And so, um, I'm all for that. I don't think we, I don't know. I don't think we should judge what, what excites other people. Yeah, for sure. I love the fact that Bernard Lagat is part of it because I, I, I envision him being like, like a spy in a way, like he's going to like <laughs> use what he learns from this to like all of a sudden, like potentially like, you know, like maybe he gets top three in Atlanta. And then all of a sudden he's like in the race with Kipchoge you know, next summer in the Olympics. And he's like, I learned a lot, <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? From your attempt, you know what I mean? I can just see him being like, you know, such a sly veteran, but obviously still so talented and gifted and fit to like, you know, learn from it. Um, this experience, even though he's not the one, you know, be the active participants. Yeah. You know, like is one of those guys, you can never count him out. He has so much experience on the world stage and he's, he's a guy you can never count out. So certainly I think this, um, I don't know, this whole attempt, I, like you said, I, I think it'd be, I think you could learn from it. <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind being a fly on the wall in some of those uh, conversations as well. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, just a remarkable year for you. Uh, what, what a great finish to, you know, your race in Berlin. And I'm so excited to see what you are going to do over the next couple months heading into Atlanta. So first of all, congratulations. Second of all, good luck the rest of the way. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Matt, thank you for coming on the show. This was so much fun. Man, he was so good at this. Maybe he should be hosting a podcast. He was just really, really good. Hopefully, I can get Matt back on the show before Atlanta to see how things are going over the winter. Thanks again to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode. Go to InsideTracker.com and use code RAMBLINGRUNNER to save 15% on their amazing services. Thank you so much for rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. It warms my heart every time you do it. I couldn't be more thankful. So have a great day and happy running. This has been a production of the Rambling Runner Podcast Network. Thank you to my producer, David Margetti from InPost Media. Also thank you to Metapi for the music and his song, Evolution. Deep. I'm a real person, real versions.